I'm very influenced by the Beatles in harmonic structure, sounds, textures, and and just general vibe, like how to build a thing. Like they're very good. They're very good at at creating a sound and a thing to make it feel a certain way. Junctures from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. To lead a better life. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today, I have the honor of introducing Corey Wong on the podcast. You may know Corey from Wolfpack, The Fearless Flyers, his solo work, or his awesome podcast, Wong Notes, in which he interviews other music legends such as Derek Trucks and John Mayer. Corey is a musical genius, and I'm thrilled to be able to speak with him. In this episode, we'll dive deep into his influences, the kind of impact the Beatles had on his music, the Get Back documentary, using artificial intelligence in songs, the Beatles' best musical moments, and so much more. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's an honor having you. I I first want to congratulate you on your new album, The Lucky One, that was released back in August. It's so fantastic, and I just have so many questions to ask you about the album and about your creative process in general. But, well, I'd like to start by asking you, actually, when did you first discover your passion for music? Probably, I would say I was, I started being obsessed with music when I was in fourth grade, fifth grade, something like that. I think it was the sort of thing where I would get home from school and I'd turn on MTV and I was just enamored by music videos. And then later in the evening, they'd have live concerts and that sort of thing. And there was always music in the house, like my dad's a huge music fan. I'm my, I don't come from a family of musicians, but my dad's a total music nerd, huge wall of records, you know, organized, you know, by, by record label when it came to jazz. And then when it came to the classic rock and funk and all this stuff, it was very well organized and had just a lot of music around the house. Um, a lot of friends that and friends' parents that were also really into music. So I think a combination of those things and just the curiosity of why, when I listen to certain things, do I feel a certain way? So my obsession with listening started around fourth grade. And then in sixth grade, it got to the point where I need to be doing this. And that's when I really started playing music and I got the bug immediately. And I just, it's been my life. What was the first instrument you played? I started playing piano like most people do. Here's the issue. When I was playing, I would have loved piano. I would have stuck with it. I mean, I still, I play piano now. You can see behind me, I have a grand piano in my studio here. But the thing that I loved about music 
had to do with the feeling that I got and the emotion that was being driven through the music. And the stuff that I was playing on piano was not giving me that. You know, like, of course, you need to learn the techniques and foundations. But after about a year and a half of playing the piano, it's like, I'm not getting the thing that I love about music when I'm playing this instrument. And then school band started happening. I played the clarinet in school band. How about that? And then it was just like, this is fun. I like playing with other people, but I got to do my thing, dude. So I started playing bass. The bass is my first instrument where I really felt like I could express myself and the kind of things and emotions that I wanted to put out there. And at which point in your life did you first hear the music of the Beatles? First heard, probably when I was in the crib. First consciously understood and paid attention to, probably around that time in third grade. I My dad still to this day talks about endless stories of all these bands that he's seen in concert when he was a kid or driving up from Rochester to Minneapolis to see the Allman Brothers and you know somehow our tickets didn't get us in so we jumped the fence and I saw Hendrix for seven dollars at you know whatever and he told me this story one time about Sgt. Pepper's coming out and then Hendrix three days later coming out and opening up one of his sets with Sergeant Pepper, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" You know, because my dad's a t- well, you don't know this, but my dad is a Hendrix nut. Um, so he was like, "Check it out!" And then we listened through Sergeant Pepper's, and that was really the first record that I paid attention to. And again, it was so much of that feeling. There's so much of that emotion, and that that album in general kind of has a roller coaster of of feelings and vibes, and it's got so much interesting happening with the production and sound. And I think he knew to play me that record because I was also starting to get into recording and doing, or like, I guess, no, this is third grade ish. I was, I was starting to really get into music and the sounds that were happening. And he was just pointing out all these different things and different voices, different types of instruments. But really the connection was the Hendrix thing that, that kind of got him into getting me to listen to this one record that he loved. So you went from playing the piano to the bass, but your dad loved Jimi Hendrix. How did you decide to pick up the guitar for the first time? Did he have any influence on that? <laughs> the funny thing is I wanted to be a bass player. And I think deep down inside, I still see myself as a bass player, which is funny. Uh, but also maybe not. I don't know. Whatever. All my favorite bands when I was really starting to play music were bass heavy bands. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Primus, Green Day, you know, these bands that had cool bass lines happening and where the bass was a really much a part of the thing. And my dad would say, okay, you want to play bass? Let's get you into Jocko. You need to know Jocko, Weather Report. I got into all that stuff. You want to play a little more melodic bass lines? Listen to McCartney. Listen to the way that, you know, it weaves in a different way and how it's unique and different than all these things. I loved bass lines, bass parts. But I wanted to start a band more than anything. And the two friends at school that agreed to be in a band with me didn't play instruments. So one of them said, I'll play drums. My, you know, my family has a drum kit. I can, I can borrow the drum kit or whatever. I was like, all right, uh, can you get drum lessons? He's like, I'm not getting drum lessons. Screw it. I'm staying after school. I talked to the band director. I was like, hey, can I get the keys to the band room, hang for an hour after school every day. I'm going to practice instruments. I'm not going to be dicking around. I want to be working on music. I said, okay. He let me sit there. I, for a month, I taught myself how to play drums. And the next month, I taught my friend how to play drums. 
okay? Finally, I have a drummer in my band. Now we're jamming, drums and bass, okay? We need a guitar player. So my friend Aaron said, look, I told you I'll be in your band, but I'm not playing guitar. My stepdad has a bass in the attic. My parents aren't going to buy me. Like, we can't afford a guitar. I'm not going to do it. It's like, all right, you know, try conceptualize a two-bass thing. I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it in my head. There was no blueprint for me as a sixth grader to see that. So I said, fine, I'm going to move over to guitar because I'll do whatever it takes at this point to, to start a band. So I save up my shoveling money because that's what we do in Minneapolis as a kid. You, you shovel your neighbor's driveways. Save up your money. <laughs> and I went down the pawn shop and I bought this terrible coincidentally traveling Wilbury's Gretsch. Ah. <laughs> okay. Now that guitar in general is a dope guitar. This one was not well taken care of. So I maybe spent 45, $50 on this Gretsch guitar. That was a traveling Wilbury's guitar. Like it had, you know, traveling Wilbury's artwork on it and stuff. I could, I know that I have a picture of it somewhere. I'm, I went to try to find it at my dad's house, but I had this guitar for a few months and I'm playing and playing and playing. And I'm like, dad, this, it's just not a great guitar. I can't, I don't, I don't know what it is about it. And then I finally had a couple guitar lessons. Cause at this point I've been teaching myself everything off the internet, looking on the internet to, to learn how to play guitar. Right. And I bring it into guitar center and the guy's just like, yeah, this honestly, this needs us a lot of work. And it's like, okay, whatever. Save up some more money. A couple holidays roll by like, dad, I need a guitar. I need a guitar. Finally he goes, all right, it's time to go get you a Stratocaster. Like, what do you mean? A Stratic? Like, there's so many guitars out there. He's like, Hendrix, Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan, John Frusciante, Eric Johnson. He starts listing off all these people. Dire Strait, you know, Knopfler, all these people. It's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get me a Strat. And I've been a Strat guy ever since. That's, that's what I've been playing. So it's a funny journey to all of a sudden become guitar guy here. But in my head, I still have, like, the, the this the genesis of my musicianship is coming from a being a bass player. And maybe also that's why I play the way that I play. I love playing in the rhythm section. I love arranging and having parts intertwine. And I think that might have something to do with the way that I was brought up learning music and where I came from as a bass player. That makes a lot of sense because your rhythm guitar work really kind of carries its own baseline in the songs you play on. Sure. So I think that's yeah. really a really cool connection. Now, when you write music or guitar parts, can you walk me through your creative process? Do you start with a baseline in your head and work around that? Or how does that conceptualization process start? When I'm writing music, it can come from anywhere. The majority of the time, it comes from some sort of groove or some sort of feeling. And oftentimes, it's a visual thing of a groove. I actually don't talk about this much. There's this one, there's there's certain like things that I'll see in my head for a type of groove and I will aim to make that thing happen in my head. There's this total made up visual that I have in my head of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> you know, from <laughs> don't come at me. Don't come yeah. at me about Jar Jar. Okay, I'm not saying, I have zero I have zero connection, zero anything. I don't have any opinion on Jar Jar Binks. But the way that that cat moves, it's got this like almost toe jam and earl sort of thing too, where the arms are flopping. It's got this certain swagger to it. The arms are moving and it's got a thing to it. 
And there's certain songs that make me visualize Jar Jar swaggering down the streets of some cool, <laughs> hip neighborhood, right? There are songs that make me think of that. Fame by David Bowie. Staying Alive from Saturday Night Fever. Um, what's another? Sweet Relief by Kimbra. These songs have this... <laughs> it has like this i can see toe jam and earl walking around some alien place i can see jar jar binks walking down the streets of some hip neighborhood i, I don't know what it is yeah. but sometimes I'll, I'll visualize that and i'll try to make a groove that makes me feel like i can like I get his arms moving, like get his legs moving, you know, and it, that's a certain tempo. And then there's certain things where I will visualize, okay, I know I want to do something cool at a festival or like for my live show, I'm visualizing the heads nod at the festival, you know, just like a group of people bouncing and, and I'll, I'll try to create a groove or start with something that, that I feel really calls for that thing. Or sometimes it'll be, a visual of just a, a really busy, bustling city or something, and I'll try to create something that that gets that emotion. But again, it's a lot about movement and motion and emotion, and grooves are the motion of it. A lot of times the emotion comes from the chord changes and the melody and that sort of relationship. So I try to try to use different visualization tools to help me find things, and I guess logistically, if we're talking about order of operations, a lot of times it is the groove that I start with, then add some, maybe a bass line or chord changes and then make a bass line to the chord changes. But there's also been times where I just hear a little melody in my head and I just can't stop humming it. I'll make a little voice memo and then I'll build something around that. So would you say that your music is as influenced by the Beatles as much as it is like Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not a Jar Jar guy, okay? It's just one example. It's, but yes, no, to yeah, be fair, it's yeah. the first example I gave. I think anybody who really studied and is influenced by the Beatles, I mean, here's the thing. Their, their influence is so ubiquitous and their influence is so widespread that you hear certain things and, you know, you can... Uh, you can you can just hear it all over the place. There's there's like almost parody versions of the influence. Like I guess what is that? Mr. Blue Sky or whatever. It's like every Beatles song all wrapped into one, you know, this ELO tune. And it's cool. And it's a it 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 sure makes for a great Beatles song, but it's it's not the Beatles. Whatever. But I think there's certain things, there's certain harmonic motions that people use. There's certain ways that people will use a Mellotron in production where it feels like a certain era of the Beatles and there's so many melodic things. I would say for me, the, the least in, no, let me, let me say this the right way. I'm very influenced by the Beatles in harmonic structure, sounds, textures, and, and just general vibe, like how to build a thing. Like they're very good. They're very good at, at creating a sound and a thing to make it feel a certain way. But for the music that I do, the grooves come from other sources of inspiration, the Prince, Earth, Wind, and Fire realm of things. So what can be interesting, and you hear this over so many different bands, so to me, there's so many things are so obvious as far as what is lifted from the Beatles. But in my music, the grooves aren't at all, so it doesn't 
feel, quote unquote, like it's influenced by the Beatles, but there is so much that is, whether it just be there's so much of a that sort of penny lane thing that people reference i hear this in sessions all the time oh give me the the give me the strawberry fields mellotron thing it's like okay yeah people uh people people reference this sort of stuff all the time and then it's it's not actually the thing, but it's that sound and it's that vibe, it's that energy. People hear this. That's what I mean. So much of it is so ubiquitous. There's there's just terms that are thrown around in recording sessions all the time. Certain bass tones that are very iconic, guitar tones that are iconic. There's certain ways that you can treat or mix a vocal where like the solo John Lennon stuff just has a thing to it. There's like a slap back, re- a slap back delay and a reverb occasionally where like the main vocals down the middle and you'll hear the slap back or the verb on the sides. That's a production trick that is, is very often referenced. There's a lot of just different uh, ways to, to layer instruments that are referenced all the time. But for me, a lot of it is harmony, just studying all that harmony and the way that they used really advanced harmony in a way that's so accessible and so useful in pop music that a lot of people now are writing songs that are using you know the four chords of doom that we hear on every song on the radio and now it feels like sometimes producers or writers just want that one interesting chord in the song well what's the one interesting chord that we use you know let's use Let's use the one from this Beatles song. Let's use the one from this. Oh, let's use the O Darling chord. Oh, do you mean a five chord with a sharp five that leads you into the song? Oh, okay. You know, at the end of this phrase, you know, like that song, it's, it starts out, I think it, if I remember right, it's an A. It starts on an E seven sharp five or something, or just an E with a sharp five. That, that sort of sound, some producers I'll hear say, oh yeah, give me that O Darling chord at the end of the phrase. Mm. And I just know what they're talking about. And it's not really ripped. I mean, the Beatles can't copyright one chord that leads into something, but it's those sort of things that, again, are just they're just everywhere. And and so much of so many of us that grew up listening to all that music, the the references are just immediately in our heads. Would you say that the Beatles have influenced your life in any way aside from just music? After watching a lot of the documentaries and just videos and the way that they go about making records, go about living life. I think more so, yes, watching the drive that Paul has really inspired me as a person and just watching his relentless pursuit through his entire life to constantly make good music and have different projects and different eras of the sound continue to just hone the craft and just keep at it. That has been really inspiring to me. And I look at just the way that they, in a lot of ways, have at different stages navigated notoriety or being public people. You know, they all handled it in different ways, but it was just interesting to see the way that, oh, they're all in the same band, but they they handle 
being recognized in different ways, or they handle <clears throat> their resources in different ways, and using their resources and their platform for good and for something that they really believe in or something that they think will help others. That's very inspiring to me. Now, when you talk about relating to Paul McCartney's drive, he faced a lot of criticism after the Beatles broke up. And even when people were watching mm. Get Back, like, he was seen as bossy and overbearing. And I, I bet he's probably felt guilty about that too. Is that ever a fear of yours? <laughs> and and you don't want to come off as... Yes, of course it is. <laughs> and I saw it and I'm like, yeah, no. What is anybody giving Paul... Like, dude, we're trying to make a record. Like, can we just make this record? Can we just... Can we just sit at like, look, guys, dick around all you want for 11 months. Can we just get one month where we do the album, please? Like, uh, all right, you need a three-hour break? Fine. But can we come back and get maybe two hours where we focus, get a couple takes, get it done? You know, I, I empathize with him the whole time. I'm like, yes, what is, <laughs> what is going on here? Come on. And... I, I, I see myself in that a lot of times, but that's why in a lot of projects, I like uh, all hire people that I know are there to work and then there to have fun at a certain time. And I think there is something very, very special and very important about knowing the right time when to hit the red button. Okay, get the vibe right in the studio. I, I do this a lot of times. I am very much, uh, I, I work hard and I, I'm very efficient in the studio, but a lot of times... We'll be hanging out and it just doesn't feel right. So we'll just hang out and I'll bring something up or a lot of the guys in my band are friends of mine from college. So I'll bring up something from college and we'll laugh. And then all of a sudden we'll start telling stories for a little bit and the room gets relaxed a little bit. And I'll say, all right, let's, let's do another take. Let's at the bridge. Let's just, let's just pull back our energy, maybe 15%. All right, let's hit it. And then we go and we kind of ease our way back in. But sometimes it's just, trying to get the energy right. And and I, I know that sounds a little wooey, but it, it is very much so. You need to have the energy right in the room to capture the best thing. And there's a time and a place for that. As I was watching Get Back, it really reminded me a lot of Wolfpack sessions where we are... The Wolfpack sessions are, are very fun, but we're not nearly as efficient as other sessions that I have with like my own Corey Wong music. And it's fine. That's just how it is. And it's, that's part of the, that's part of the hang. That's part of why it's special and fun too. But watching that doc gave me, gave me a lot of, gave me a lot of, I guess, permission to be okay with the way that, that the Wolfpack sessions go, where we are just kind of hanging and then it's do a couple takes and go, Granted, we our our thing is very different, and you know whatever, it, but it is much more chill, and we're hanging out, collaborating, writing stuff back and forth. Somebody's working on one thing in one room, we're working on this other thing in the other room, and then they end up being songs either on this album or an album a couple from now. But it it is it's really that was fascinating to watch. As a matter of fact, I was gonna start I was gonna start a a campaign. What was that whole thing? How many hours was that? Uh, I think it was like was six that? hours. Like six? Three parts, two hours each. So yeah, it was like six or seven hours total or something like that. Yeah, seven hours. See, I want the other 53. Because I heard <laughs> that the original cut, you probably know this better than I do. I heard the original PJ cut was 60 hours. And he was like, I can't go any less than this. 
Yeah. And Disney, whoever's like, are you kidding me? We're not putting <laughs> a 60 hour documentary out, bro. <laughs> I want the other 53. I was going to start a hashtag the other 53 campaign because I want <laughs> I want to sit through the other 53 hours. I want to yeah. watch it. I want to see. I want to get deeper into the thing like the, the those three episodes were not enough for me. Yeah. What a cool hashtag. The other 53. I love that. No, I, I agree because you want more immediately. And the coolest thing about that documentary is not only do you want more, but you also don't know what's going to happen, even though you do. Yeah. Like I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. Like, are they going to make the deadline? Yeah. Is John going to show up today? Yeah, I would love the other 53. And I think it would also be interesting to get the other 53 in the context of this is not for Disney and this is not for Disney Plus because you know more than I do. There was a lot of uh, individual things that were happening and certain stuff that was happening that they were all doing that's not really, you can kind of see it going on in the background or you see things alluded to, but it'd be interesting to see a little more raw and real of what what some of those what when the times were tense and when the times were just very mundane what that would have been like you know like there's this interesting thing in that show better call saul i don't know why i'm drawing a parallel here but the the the, the thought is that show better call saul was so slow in the first 3 seasons and it was very it seems to me that they were very intentional about just making you feel like you're in albuquerque or wherever that like it it just feels they're really setting you. It, it is interesting, but it's such a slow burn. And at some point, I realized, oh, I think they're trying to make me feel like I'm actually there. Like, this is what that town, this is what that thing is like. Yes, there's stuff happening, but I, I, I kind of wanted that feeling more watching that doc. And I think if I got the other 53, I would, I would get it. I want at some point to feel like Paul. I want to be like, all right, guys, please just press record. God, I mean, what are, I've been sitting here watching this for four hours. I have so much work to do. I, I have so much work to do right now, and I've been watching four hours. It's like, please just press record. Get one take down. I want that feeling, you know? Yeah. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we get the campaign off the ground after this podcast. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Now just, just get, you need, to, you need to get Peter Jackson on the podcast and have him send you his private Dropbox link of the 60-hour cut and then send it my way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll have it screened. Just like a one-week screening. Dude, that'd be so yeah. dope. You do one, yeah, a screen. I'll set up tents and everything. Oh, it'd be amazing. That'd be incredible. <laughs> And with, with that documentary, you actually got to see a lot of their outtakes and their creative process as well. I was wondering, yes. what did you think of them as individual musicians when you were watching that? I think they're incredible. Obviously, they each have a different level of technical proficiency. And you know, now we're in this era of, of music and music creation where you, know, you log on the internet and you see some nine-year-old that's like the most technically proficient guitar player or drummer that's ever existed and you're like come on are you kidding me <laughs> and you're just like oh i gotta compete with that yeah <laughs> and then you realize at some point no this is not a zero-sum game this is not a competition be happy for this kid that they're burning and you know root for them and hope that they don't burn out by the time they get to be your age and i think part of when you become an artist 
And part of when you start to develop a sound and find a fingerprint in music and art and in life in general, you start to recognize your fingerprint is, and, and your voice is the most important thing. And the technical proficiency thing, you just kind of need enough to, to get your, your ideas across. And oftentimes, I mean, for me, I like to have a little more technical proficiency than what I want to put out. And I'm always challenging that and always working on that. But if you look at, you know, somebody, a lot of people will scale things. Oh, is this really artistic or is this really technical? And it's kind of one or the other. Can, is it something that's just extreme mastery of an instrument or is it more artistic? You know, people make draw that comparison and it's, that's, it's unfair to me. You know, you take a look at chops versus art and it's not quite a, this is not a, a seesaw that you can just, one goes up and the other goes down. You know, you look at Dylan and you wouldn't say this cat's a really technically proficient singer or guitar player, but the art is so insane. And, and the it's just like, you don't want, a, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know why the first person that comes to mind, like Jennifer Hudson is an incredible singer. You don't want Jennifer Hudson singing Dylan songs. I mean, I, actually it would be kind of dope, but to, to get that, <laughs> the point of the Dylan songs at the time in the context of when they were written and released, his thing is what needs to be it. So when you ask about the Beatles, there's certain things that they're quite technically proficient at. They're not, you know, nobody's going to say most technically proficient bass player in the world is Paul. But it's like, yeah, do you have any idea how influential and how iconic his bass playing is and how incredibly appropriate everything was and just how right everything felt for the songs. So them as individuals, the thing, you know, cause, and I'm giving way too long of an answer for this because I went to music school and I got into these arguments with people where they're like, really? Like, dude, you're picking Harrison over Ingve Malmsteen. I'm like, bro, <laughs> I get it. Malmsteen rips, but I'm going to pick Harrison to be in my band. Okay. You know, you go through the <laughs> stupid college music college stuff. But so much of, and, and I'm not saying that Ingve plays inappropriate. He plays his own music, and what he chooses to play in his own music is appropriate because it's his own name. But you take a look at those musicians, and you recognize that they're doing everything right for the song, and they're doing everything that feels appropriate for what the music calls for. And I can't think of many times... I'm like, ah, you were just trying to do a little drummery thing, weren't you? <laughs> oh, cute. You did that cute drummery thing. You wanted to be on the cover of Modern Drummer Magazine, so you played this drum fill in hopes that you'd be on Modern Drummer Magazine rather than I'm playing this drum fill because I think it's the most appropriate and best thing for this song. And the opposite is what I hear a lot of times when I'm on recording sessions or when I'll, see, I'll listen to records. I'm like, oh, come on. That... That bass fill was so inappropriate. Like that bass, that really did you need to do that, or did you just want to do it? Right. You know. Yeah. And and when I listen to Beatles play, I don't really get that. It just feels like everything's appropriate. It feels like everything's great. And obviously, a lot of that has to do with being very well produced as well, and having other people around. But I think them as individuals were also very aware of here's my role in this song, and here's how to make it happen. Here's my role in this song, and here's how to make it happen. They all found a way to fit in and blend and arrange in a way that didn't feel like one part gets in the way of the other, and that is huge. 
Are there any Beatles guitar parts or bass lines that really stand out to you or that you think are unique or cool? Where where would I even start with that answer? <clears throat> I think what else what I will say is I really like all of the playing and parts. My favorite album is Magical Mystery Tour. If I were to pick one of their records to listen to forever, I think the parts are very interesting, the tones are interesting, the songs are great. That one, as far as... That's my favorite record. I mean, I guess if I had to really think bass lines and guitar parts, I guess I would probably go Abbey Road, but... I don't know. I, I, I think Magical Mystery Tour... It, it, it'd be so hard to answer that. Obviously, listen to me stumbling around this. Well, the entire <laughs> Abbey Road and Magical Mystery Tour. You know? <laughs> but I just think that those as a whole, the the artistic statement that those albums are and the way that the parts fit together and play are just, they're so cool. I mean, I will say this. There's a lot of songs, guitar playing-wise, that people don't acknowledge are super dope. Uh, Dear Prudence and Your Bird Can Sing. I mean, they're obviously great ones, but I think as guitar players, people aren't like, oh, I love that one. You know, we, we gravitate towards other things. Those are very cool guitar parts. Those are really cool. Actually, a lot, I mean, as far as, well, yeah, I mean, because most people are, well, my guitar generally weeps, you go something, songs that are just a little more obvious, like, oh, yeah, guitar player stuff. But I think Dear Prudence is just such a cool guitar song, And Your Bird Can Sing, it's such a cool guitar song that people don't really think of as guitar songs as much. You know, it's not as talked about in the community, but they're very interesting and I, I they're pleasing to listen to, to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's not too many cases in the Beatles catalog where one of them kind of takes like a three-minute Jimi Hendrix center stage guitar solo. It's more kind of like you said earlier, they find ways to incorporate their instruments together to serve the whole of the song. And uh, I, I think that's a really cool aspect mm -hmm. of their music. Totally. And there are a couple examples, like obviously While My Guitar Gently Weeps and something are ones that you know are, are going to end up in the guitar magazines but it would be interesting i would be really interested to hear what they would have done after the 80s 70 after after all the 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 entirety of the 70s and 80s just as a band together cuz there was so much just guitar <laughs> and and then there then then the 90s but it would be interesting to see how they would have all worked together you know, I think a good response to it that, in a weird way, like Weezer on the Blue Album, they, they're all song songs, but there's guitar solos, but the solos are just kind of playing the the, the melodies of the songs. You know, I, I'm, I'd be interested if George would have maybe taken a little more of that approach in a different setting. Obviously, you know, we have examples, but... I'm curious as a band what 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 would have happened after that very guitar heavy era if they would have been influenced or felt obligated in some way or just the pull to do that or maybe actually genuinely influenced. Actually, you want I brought up Weezer that last record a couple records ago. There's an entire album that's like, "Oh yeah, this is you just like 
listened to the Beatles for six months and then made this record. <laughs> Another one. Again, like there was there's certain stuff that I just listened to. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Eleanor Rigby, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> but it was cool, you know, but in, not in a way that's, I, I, again, it, uh, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I'm listening to that music, I, I feel more at home because, you know, I like the Beatles. So when I hear Beatles influenced music, it's kind of fami- familiar mm. and I, you know, I, I like it right away almost. And it's, it's the one, the one tricky part with that as musicians, as writers, producers, and as, as consumers of art taking it in at what point do we call something or feel that something is derivative and at what point do we feel like something is influenced by and maybe carrying on the tradition of you know like cuz so much of so much of their music has very musically rich things to it and i mean just like uh, you know they 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 snuck some vegetables into the recipe you know, there was, there was some vegetables into the chicken nugget recipe for the general public. And I often hear people try to do that in modern pop music. And it, they're like the reference for that. So it's, it's interesting to see when something or why something might feel derivative and where the line is just influence. And I think that also, in the modern era, is where... We're going to get into a lot of these things with AI. It's like, oh, yeah, write me a Beatles album. And it'll do it. It's like, yeah, but, and, and is that unethical? Or is it like, yeah, but Rivers Cuomo did that four years ago. Like, he just basically, like, wrote a Beatles record and put it out as Weezer. But it's it's all his music, and it's him, and he was, like, making a, a record that sounded like the Beatles. Uh, which is wrong or right? Of course, you know, as a human artistic expression, you want that. I'm wondering, you know, I'm just like so many other people in the in the arts and in the industry right now. We're trying to figure out how we handle all that stuff moving forward. And I think there is a line. But what is that line? I don't know. We're all trying to figure it out. We don't have to go down that road, by the way. This is a stream of consciousness that you're hearing right now <laughs> because I think out loud and I apologize for that. Well, no, that's actually a really great point to bring up because... Now that you mention it, there are so many Oasis songs that sound exactly like Beatles songs. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, she's Here electric. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, let's get it into rips it. Rips off like three Beatles songs in one that could be written maybe in a year or two by ChatGPT. But what's the difference between having some code write that and having an AI Paul McCartney sing it, and Liam and Noel Gallagher writing that and singing it in their own voices, which are both so influenced by John Lennon? Yeah, and at what point can you just say like, oh, they grew up in the same, loosely the same geographical area, you know, geographic area, and then they have a lot of the same influence, and you know, their voices do sound similar to the general public because of X, Y, and Z, and blah blah blah, and this and that. That's a, that's a tough one. That's that's exactly it. Like, what where is the line, and what do we, what do we say? that we're, we're down with or not, you know? And I've, I've thought about this and I've had conversations with people where it's like, okay, at some point with AI art, are we going to have to do like a, you know, like you go to the grocery store and you see a, like a, uh, a piece of fruit and there's a tag on it that says certified organic, you know, it, it gets this certified organic label or you go USDA beef or I, I don't know, whatever grass, but it has this official 
stamp or something? Are we going to, do we need to do that with anything that had AI involved in it? Do you have to have some sort of stamp? Like this is, this is artificial intelligence enhanced or AI was involved in the creation of this kind of in the opposite way of the, the certified organic. And then ethically, some people obviously are not going to be abiding by that and they're going to use AI and say that it was them or whatever. In the same way where a lot of people say they use organic farms and don't use pesticides or whatever. There's, there's a couple parallel examples of how to maybe treat some of this and how to maybe go forward with it. Ethically, I don't know where we're at with that. I mean, the thing is, the AI is going to make a song that we like more than Oasis. And they're going to make a song that sounds like the one of the dopest Beatles tracks ever. And how am I supposed to deal with that? You know, yeah. how are yeah. we? It's It knows the entirety of, it will soon be able to figure out like, oh, here's why you like those songs. And here's this and this. It's not just, oh yeah, you know, like they did a, a, a C over B flat F to F over A and do an F minor over A flat. And, you know, it, 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 it's not, it's, it's not going to be that sort of, that's like our music theory version of it and then we have different ways and producer dissections of things that are going to be able to explain it but i think the ai will be able to emotionally and sound wise and writing wise and lyrics and chords and grooves all this stuff it's just going to be able to know why we at this point in history connect to certain things and of course we as humans can figure that out but it will do it in a way where it could spit out a thousand of those and then really fast and i mean I'm, the only reason i'm hesitating is because i have a bunch of songwriter friends in in nashville that can spit out a thousand of those and a lot of them will be great and a lot of them will be yeah and some of them will be incredible but the thing is are we gonna have this computer doing it and how do i feel about that if i hear this thing made by a computer and i love it and i want to put it on my playlist and then i find out later it was ai what do i do do i accept it am i okay with it it certainly made me feel something it was good it was right in the moment until I found out it wasn't some kid at the Royal Academy who'd just been studying and really poured their heart into it, you know. Um, and I only say he because, you know, if it's if I'm fooled into thinking it's one, well, I guess anything, if it's one of the voices of the Beatles or or Liam or Noel. But I think, yeah, I don't know. We're we're in a weird place. Where are you with that? How you, have you thought about? It? Did you? I, I I assume you saw the the AI Paul thing, and you've seen some of the the young Paul Beck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wild, dude. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild out there. You know, you know, it really is a crazy time, and uh, I think it's tough. As a listener, if I'm listening to a song that I like. And then I was to find out it was artificially developed. I think I would feel like it was a bit of a letdown because I think when you like a song, you're subconsciously relating your life to those lyrics. Like there's an immediate emotional connection and identification with the singer. Like if I'm listening to In My Life by the Beatles or if anyone else is, they can think about all of the people in their life and then also think about John Lennon's life and what it was like at the time when he wrote that song, and then form a connection with with that. But if it's AI generated, it's like a one way street. Like there's no looking through to the other side and trying to relate to the singer because there's no life to relate to, and the dialogue between the singer and the listener is is taken away. 
Yeah. But the other thing about AI, like in the new Beatles song, Now and Then, it they use AI to restore an old John Lennon tape and, and clean it up, which I think is really cool. But then there's also the potential of, you know, will Paul McCartney use artificial intelligence in the future to maybe make his voice sound younger than it actually is, which might add a new dimension to new songs he's writing. How how do you feel about using AI as a tool to alter your own voice, but into something different? Yeah, or like, what did they do? They made Harrison Ford look younger in the new Indiana Jones? Yeah. Similar, yeah. similar sort of thing there? Exactly. I don't know how I feel about it. This is what I'm saying, man. I, I go back and forth, and I have conversations with other very insightful, intelligent, creative people, and we... We talk ourselves in circles around it. You know, at the end of the day, we're always like, oh, if it's good, it's good. If you connect to it, you connect to it. Um, you know, is it... If I sit down for a chair massage at the Minneapolis airport, because <laughs> I got 15 minutes to kill, and it hits the spot, is it just this machine you know, doing this thing, as opposed to if I go to my actual massage therapist who binds the actual muscle and gets in there and does a thing. I don't know. It's like the human thing versus this machine doing this, but the machine's been programmed because it really knows, like, yeah, you're probably hurting in between your shoulder blades here, you know, and you're probably carrying tension at the top of your shoulders, but, you know, it's, I don't know. Maybe that's not the greatest analogy, but there's certain times where it's like a machine will do something that a human can do better but it will at least get the job done. What happens when it does it better? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about... I mean, at the end of the day, look, if Paul wants to make himself sound younger, I mean, I put my voice into the young Paul AI. I found it. I found some different things, and it's quite interesting. Certain things, you, you, you have to feed it the way that it will work, like I've tried the Kurt Cobain one, and if you just sing like a crooner, it doesn't sound like it. But you, if you really give it the Kurt thing, then it'll it'll go. Like you have to sing in the octave that Kurt would have sang it in. You have to sing with the intensity that Kurt would have sang it in, and then it, it then it really starts to sound like that. If Paul wants to sound younger, hmm, interesting. I would be curious to see what he would sign off on, and say this is. Good, because that also is going to set a precedent then for the rest of us. You know, what is acceptable? And and then there's going to be interpretations of, of how how and what is acceptable. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely curious. If he wants to do it, if they want to do it, I'm, I'm down to hear and see what it is. But I think it definitely gets touchy when you use somebody else's voice. Like if, if Paul was like, oh, yeah, I want to. I want to hear Ariana Grande sounds on my song, so I'm just going to plug the Beatles stems into the Ariana AI. I'd be like, oh, bro, come on, man. Who at Capital convinced you that this was a good idea? But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think there's it's, – it's all going to be tricky, and I can't say anything right now because I actually don't have an opinion, and any opinion that I have might change in six months' time or – whatever this this Kurzweil exponential growth of technology that we're in, uh, the, the singularity, whatever you want to call it, wherever we are on that curve, I might change my mind. In a month, I might say, okay, 
here's exactly how I think. And then three months from now, I might, I might think something different. I, but honestly, I, I genuinely don't have an opinion. I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I just, I'm asking questions right now first. So if the opportunity presented itself right now, would you use AI to make a song? I think if I was making a demo and I said, hey, I want to do something that gives me the same feeling as Fame by David Bowie, Sweet Relief by Kimbra, and uh, Staying Alive by Saturday Night Fever. Hit me with something. And it gave me something, at least a jumping point to start. I'd be okay with that. I'd be tempted to use it, potentially. I'd potentially be tempted to use it in the end. But I think a lot of times... I think AI is great. And yes, I will use it. And I, I do use on occasion certain aspects of things. I mean, as we all do, I mean, at the end of the day, as a compressor AI, it sees when the when the, the when the decibel level gets over a certain threshold and it pulls it back a little bit. You know, it's uh, but um but I think a lot of times as creatives, if we use something to help get us going, a lot of times that's all we need. You know, for me, a lot of times that's why writing sessions are great. You're just with somebody who's going to help you get the ideas going. And then once your ideas are going, once, you know, once the car is moving, then it's just going to go. And a lot of times we need that. So I will definitely be open to, I haven't found an AI that I've used or liked for this, but if I had a certain thing that just helped me get my ideas off the ground or at least just get my creative juices flowing in a writing session or in getting something moving, then absolutely. But I think that's as far as I'm comfortable taking it right now. I want to, I want to just get my juices flowing and then make my own decisions from there. Use my, use my own judgment and taste while, while it still quote unquote matters. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So at a time where the temptation to use artificial intelligence in order to sell more songs or gain a wider fan base at the time where that's so high. Why do you think at the same time music from 1963 is still so, so popular? Yeah. I mean, in a, in a certain way that the, I'm interpreting the question of kind of why is it timeless? And I think that we're always, most of us are trying to chase things that are timeless. I mean, there's certain things that you listen to is like, wow, that sounds so much like an era. That sounds like 2004. Cool. All right. Like that, that actually serves a certain purpose as well. That, that actually is kind of cool. I've, I've learned to like that. I've listened back to things like, wow, that's so 2008. And I used to think, oh, that's terrible. You should always be timeless, but I'll listen to certain things that were on the radio at the time. And then it actually makes me feel nostalgic for that. And it, it reminds me of that time. So actually it's, I'm, I'm, kind of in some ways liking things not always but that sound like an era but why does a lot of their music sound timeless why does it still connect today i think in a lot of ways because the subject matter is timeless in the lyrics and the melodies are genuinely good and they match the chords really well and you listen to certain music that's not timeless like, well, yeah, it's kind of a lame melody or, you know, some stuff that sounds of an era that doesn't feel like eh, this isn't going to cut it in 20 years. 
Yeah, well, you know why? It's that song was popular at the time because they used some cool new production technique. It had this certain sound. They used this buzzword that was going around in the zeitgeist at the time and just like doesn't apply to us now. So it's not timeless. I think the subject matter that was being sang about in, in many cases, not every song with the Beatles was this way, but so much of the material was timeless subject matter. And the melodies were that good, the chords were that good, and the performances are ones that feel authentic and they feel real. I think at the end of the day, we love seeing people do the thing in front of us. And a lot of this music just feels like them doing the thing in front of us. And that there's so many reasons why we will connect, but I think on a very simple level, amazing melodies and chord changes, well-performed, singing subject matter that is timeless is a great recipe for having something that will last forever. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think that a lot of their music has the energy where when you listen to it, you feel like you're watching them perform live. And that's actually something that I feel when I listen to your new album as well, The Lucky One, which I, I want to ask you about that. How do you put so much energy into those songs and maintain that energy throughout the course of the album? Like, where do you where do you find that and harness it? And how do you produce that like the Beatles did? I think the one thing that I really take into consideration is what do I want to do? And then I do it. <laughs> it's so simple. What sounds like fun to me? What do I want to do? I don't have a label telling me to do anything. I, I don't have a label telling me, mm, come, back with, come back with six or seven more and then we'll figure it out. I am that judge for myself. And I don't have the label saying, really, you want to collaborate with both Dodie and Alan Stone and Big Gigantic? Like Big Gigantic's kind of an EDM-y group. Uh, you really want to have them on the same record as like Ariel Posen and some of these other people. It's like, yes, I do. Want to know why? Because they're my friends. And guess what? I like what they do. And it does fit because we're going to make music that, to me, feels like it fits together. And my my voice on the guitar, my voice as a producer, as a mixer, is going to be something that blends it all together and is a through line and a thread that goes through the record. And some I've had certain friends of mine that are on labels have people say, like, yeah, I know these are your friends, but we don't really want you collaborating with them on this record. Or we think you should do this person instead. Or uh, we don't we don't think you should do half instrumental, half vocal tunes. And for me, I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm doing what feels fun to me. And I, I wrote 25 more songs than what ended up on this album. And what ended up on the album is what I thought was the, the 12 best songs. The ones that, actually, the ones that fit the most together. There's a, there's a couple songs that I wrote that might be better than a couple of the others, but I haven't solved the puzzle yet. There's a couple tunes where it's like, ah, there's a couple pieces missing on this one. I, I don't want to put it out until I, until I, until I get it. You know? and, and that's part of the thing, too, is having that discernment of, okay, um, I think where I'm at in my life is a place where I'm not going to be able to figure this song out until maybe next year. And I'll pull up the session file, and maybe I, I could maybe pull it up today and solve the riddle of the song. Um, but I didn't feel like... It needed it for this album, even though some songs, you know, that I might feel, oh, this these could be ones that are bangers. Great. Next record. 
they'll get figured out when they get figured out, and they'll be a part of the collection of songs that feels appropriate for it. And I think the thing that I do that when I approach things is just I want to work with people that I enjoy working with. I want to work with people that I'm going to have fun working with, and I want to just release music that feels like it's who I am, where I am today in my life. Are there any projects on the horizon? Are you involved in anything now? Yes, I'm about to go out on tour again. I'm doing a Europe tour, a U.S. tour. I have a residency in New York with Wolfpack that we're doing. We're doing a week of shows in November. That'll be great. And with the Fearless Flyers, my other band. So I have three bands, Wolfpack, Fearless Flyers, and Corey Wong. Go figure. Fearless Flyers are also doing a residency in New York in December. And then we're... I'm working on writing a bunch of music right now with those guys, and we're gonna we're gonna record an, an album after our residency when we're in New York. That'll be great, different thing. And you know, being a part of all these projects, I've always said that creativity is a vine that blossoms rather than a gas tank that empties. And these sort of projects, being a part of these things, being around so many other creative people, actually is a thing that helps drive me and give me the energy and creative aura that I need to continue doing what I'm doing. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to be at one of those shows in New York. I can't wait to see you live. Yeah, come on out. Let me know any show you want to come to. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been an honor to be able to speak with you and to have such an insightful and amazing conversation with you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate the show and subscribe to this podcast so you can get a notification every time a new episode is released. Thank you to Corey Wong for coming on the podcast. All of Corey's projects and tour information will be in the podcast description, so go click on those and check out his work. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week with a brand new episode. 